Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and you can find out more about Everybody us at www.bethanycovenant.org. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set these dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together today Uh, bless you um, and be acceptable to you. In your name, amen. So last week was Pentecost. If you don't remember, Pentecost is a celebration of the day that the Spirit of God filled the first believers and the church of Jesus was born. It's all recorded in this book called The Acts of the Apostles. It's a part two. It was written by a physician whose name was Luke, who was commissioned by a man named Theophilus to create what Luke calls an orderly account of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and then the early days of the Jesus movement. The church beginning to work on the mission that Jesus left them. Now, Pentecost was this amazing moment, right? It's a supernatural moment. People saw and heard things they could not explain except to give God the credit and the glory. Something like flames came down on the disciples who began to preach in languages that they didn't even speak. How could they? They weren't well-traveled merchants. They weren't royalty. They were simply blue-collar workmen and women without the benefit of an extensive education or travel experience. And yet, here they are. They're preaching to and being understood by a crowd of people as diverse as it could possibly get. People from all over the Mediterranean world. People with diverse languages and cultural customs assembled in one of the major trade centers of the ancient world. The nations had quite literally come to the disciples from all corners of the Roman Empire. And God did not waste the opportunity. Thousands came to know God that day. When I was a teenager, I took this trip with the Boy Scout troop that I was in to hike Ampersand Mountain in the Adirondacks. Anybody been to Ampersand before? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, It's a pretty intense hike, especially if you're an out-of-shape teenager who'd rather have his nose in a book. I'm sure that we've all had some version of this experience. Uh, Hours of hard work, hiking, struggling, picking our way up slippery rocks and inclines, couple of setbacks, but then there's that view, right? You get to the top, and there's this sense of wonder and accomplishment and exhaustion and excitement and awe from where we've come. 
That's what the disciples are experiencing this day. They've hit this metaphorical mountaintop in their lives. They've followed three years with Jesus, and then there's this week of traumatic events and a resurrection, but then he leaves with this sort of vague promise that they're supposed to wait for something. And then suddenly the moment comes. The Spirit is poured out. Thousands come to faith. Sermons are preached in many languages. People are healed in so many different kinds of ways. And this new community is formed where the orphans and the widows and the poor are cared for because everyone chooses to share what they have with everyone else. It's this utopian moment in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, it's not quite what they'd expected, but it's amazing nonetheless. But then the next day comes. And then the next day comes. Then the next day comes. And life goes on. Now there's things happening. The church is growing a little bit. But while the world feels sort of brand new, it also kind of feels totally the same at the same time. I mean, the Romans are still around. Not to mention Herod and the Sadducees. And some cracks start to show in this utopia. Now I've heard a lot of sermons talk about how the Acts 2 community is somehow the goal. That somehow if only we could recapture that moment, if only we'd listen to the Spirit enough, we'd have the perfect community that God had intended. But the more that I read the book of Acts, the more that I think that these first few moments following Pentecost are actually more like a mountaintop experience. It's this powerful moment that is worth remembering and holding on to. But then God invited them back into the valley of the real world. Like on an actual mountain, at some point, we have to stop staring at the view and start walking back down to the ground because we didn't actually move to the mountaintop. We're only visiting. It's amazing. It's inspiring but we can't stay there. Which is another way of saying this is not actually the norm. If you keep reading through the book of Acts, things start to change dramatically. First, there's these odd moments in the mix, these cracks in the utopia. Like the time when this wealthy couple named Ananias and Sapphira, ever heard of them? They try to make themselves look super generous by donating some money from something they sold, but then they kept some of the money for themselves and didn't tell anyone and then fall dead in front of the church for their deception. And it doesn't stop there. Peter and John are put on trial. More people start getting arrested. James is executed. Complaints start to come from inside the church about ethnic discrimination in the daily distribution of their shared food. Stephen, who's one of the deacons, is executed. And a persecution breaks out. The Sadducees, who are Hebrew collaborators with the Roman Empire, the Roman oppressors, these Sadducees are only interested in maintaining the status quo of their own wealth and power. They start to aggressively pursue eradicating this fledgling faith that keeps disrupting their peace. And so the followers of Jesus are scattered across Israel and Samaria. Which brings me back to that first scripture I just read. Because... When the Spirit was poured out on the first believers and many came to faith, what happened? Everything following Pentecost, so the Spirit's been poured out, 
happens in Jerusalem. Which means that they hadn't yet followed the mandate that they'd gotten from Jesus. The one, you know, that said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's only after the persecution breaks out in Acts chapter 8 that we get Peter baptizing a Roman family in Caesarea and getting in trouble for it, by the way, with the Jews. And we see Philip preaching in the enemy nation of Samaria and then to this mysterious Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of nowhere. It's only after the church came down off the mountaintop that we start to see that the Great Commission becomes a reality. The question, now what, was answered not on the mountain, it was answered in the valley. We too find ourselves in a sort of uh, time between times. I don't know if you've been watching the news at all lately, but you'll probably notice that the world is changing. And it's changing really quickly. If you'd asked any of us here 20 years ago what we thought that the world would look like today, I doubt that we'd be, what we're looking at is the answer we might have given back then. Now, I don't know, maybe if you watch Star Trek or the Jetsons, maybe a few of those things might have resonated a bit today. Although I think that's actually a question of inspiration rather than prediction. Now, change is a pretty normal part of life. Things are always changing in the world. People are born, they live, they die. Accidents and disasters and pandemics happen. Technology changes as we learn new things. Marriages happen, divorces happen. Wars and treaties happen. There's a time for everything under the sun, right? Bear with me. I'm about to let out my inner anthropologist. So change is normal. But there are also times in history when change accelerates. When one era begins and another era ends. When a large set of cultural assumptions about reality ends and a new culture with different assumptions and presuppositions about reality begins. If you look over the history of what's called the Global West, which is uh, Europe and then eventually North America and Australia, this tends to happen about every 500 years or so. Think about how completely different European cultures were in, say, like the year 1000 compared to the year 1500. There's a pretty drastic difference. But then there's also a space between those eras called a gray zone, called so by Mark Sayers, who's a sociologist and a pastor. We're not really in the white of one era. We're not really in the black of the other era. But we're in this sort of weird, blurred, in-between thing. The elements of one era are mixed or exaggerated with elements of the coming era whose uh, assumptions about the world from the old era then mix and mingle. You kind of see what I'm getting at here? The change happens drastically and quickly, but there's still this period of movement in between the two. Now, a brief sidebar. As we begin this new series this week, we are also taking the next natural step from last week at Pentecost. So today, again, if there is a particular word or phrase that is being put on your heart by God through our worship and song, through our prayers, through the scriptures, or from our time in the word today, hold on to that word or phrase 
And after the service, before you stuff yourself with pancakes, there's a table in the lobby and you can write that word or phrase down on a feather, which will then be hung on the sculpture that is in the steeple. Feathers remind us of the dove that has long been a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the new series. In the next three weeks, we are going to investigate three of these really big changes that are happening in the midst of this gray zone moment, which we're calling pillars. Complexity, consumerism, and chaos. A very brief overview of each. Complexity. We have moved from a complicated world into a complex world. The world of yesterday was not without its challenges, but everything was fairly linear and hierarchical. If you do A, you pretty much always get B. Now, the path of employment, for example, pretty straightforward, right? You go to school, you go to college, you get a degree, you work somewhere for 40 years, and then you enjoy a pretty comfortable retirement. This is not the world of today. With the growth of globalization and the way that that interconnects everything, as the world gets bigger, you could say, we are seeing that we have rapidly stopped relying on these traditional systems of support. Institutions like the church, our local communities, cooperation with the corporations, even government. And instead, we are encouraged to rely on ourselves alone. We are free and encouraged to self-actualize to make of ourselves whatever we want, however we want, and to encourage others to do the same. Now, we are deeply interconnected, yet we present ourselves as having this innate right to be fiercely independent. We don't believe the world, uh, that we don't believe that we should have the, to rely on anyone, nor, by the way, do we think we should be held accountable by anyone. The thing is that this results in both anxiety, because being solely responsible for creating your best self is pretty stressful, and depression, because despite what we're told, human beings are in fact social creatures. And while our culture says that we are the kings and queens of our own world, human beings must be part of something larger than ourselves to survive and thrive, which requires relationships with a depth that will out of necessity push back against our own world building, which is a challenging tension that we are not navigating well. So complexity. Pillar number two, consumerism. Now the Renaissance and the Reformation, if you remember back from your history, around 1500 or so, it gave us a very wealthy society. The world of the individual, if the individual is the greatest good, was built on the back of economic prosperity from cheap goods and services. We can buy whatever we want, and an abundance of free time freed the growing middle class to make of themselves whatever they wanted. We are encouraged then to spend in excess all of our resources and to experiment with our money, our time, our spirituality, our emotions, and many other things. Yet while consumerism is not new to our culture, in some ways, it's actually the backbone. Prosperity can no longer be assumed in a destabilized global economy with multiple superpowers vying for supremacy, nor can cheap goods and services be assumed in the midst of international competition 
and increasing unpredictability in supply chains and inflation. Yet our desires remain. Our fall comes from seduction rather than from persecution. We're actually oppressed by getting what we want in excess, the cost of which is actually isolation and a loss of meaning. The wealthiest king in the history of the world, David's son, King Solomon, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life. We heard from that earlier. And he begins by shouting, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Pillar number three, chaos. Uncertainty is rampant in the gray zone. Now, I've already mentioned how the world of the previous era was not particularly, uh, it was very linear, right? It was very predictable. A leads to B leads to C, okay? And you can count on that. But today, if you do A, you might get B. Uh, more likely you'll get some of B, but maybe a little bit of C, and maybe D, and then E for some reason. You don't even know where that came from. And then A started to change somehow, and you're not sure how that happened. See, the world is no longer predictable, and it's no longer linear. It turns out that the scientific method uh, of the Renaissance and the Reformation that was supposed to give us this progress and immortality and a bright golden future only made things more complex. Instead of the simplicity of an apple falling from the tree, right, remember Newton? We got quantum physics and string theory. Or to bring it down to earth a bit, instead of flying cars and robot servants, we got Twitter and reality TV. Our deeply interconnected global reality is no longer a top-down hierarchy, it's a network, where if you pull on one thread, it can affect things all over the place that you hadn't expected it to affect. And it can even unravel a bit of the tapestry. Think about all of those issues with the supply chain that we're seeing, and you'll see what I mean. But it's more than just economics. It's also fears about international competition or political polarization from the resulting power struggles. It's the transience that comes from a global society that is on the move and the isolation that then comes with that. It's the growing fears about AI, which by the way, I can tell you that any true sci-fi nerd has been polite to Siri and Alexa since we got them for this very reason. <laughs> Alexa, turn on the lights, please. Here's the thing. The cultural and economic stability that we've enjoyed here in the United States post-World War II up until about 15, 20 years ago is actually a historic oddity. If you look at history, that kind of stability is really unusual. In fact, it's actually an artificial stability that was not sustainable. But we got used to it. And so the change in the status quo that we're feeling now feels even more intense. But our world now is returning to a more chaotic, more unpredictable, but more normal reality. So I assume everyone's feeling warm fuzzies after that, right? I know, it's heavy stuff. And as we heard earlier from the book of Ecclesiastes, there's really nothing new under the sun. 
we're very, very good at putting a new coat of paint or a new fabric or a bit of detailing on the side of our cultural sins. And while they can certainly feel new to us as individuals who don't live for thousands of years to see all of the, uh, and experience all of these patterns, the changes in the world that we're seeing are really, they're really just the same old things. Now, I want to be careful here because this is not really intended to be an academic exercise. I know it sounded like that. It's one thing to understand what's going on, but it's an entirely other thing to live what is going on. To live in the midst of the transition between areas in this gray zone, much less as a church serve others in the midst of that. The rubber meets the road of these cultural shifts can feel very bleak, chaotic, confusing, And it tends to cause a lot of anxiety and desperation and depression, which, by the way, we are seeing in record numbers in millennials, in Gen Z, and in Gen Alpha. These are the first generations in a very long time who have to reevaluate the expectations they've been taught because the world that they live in can no longer support the quality of life enjoyed by their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. Which leads us to the real question we're asking over the next few weeks. Relating to each of these pillars, complexity, consumerism, and chaos, we're asking the question, what does the good news of Jesus look like in the midst of this time and this place for these people? Because it's still good news, right? Even in the hard times, even in confusing and unpredictable times, If we were super comfortable with everything before, that might mean we need to uh, reevaluate and ask ourselves some hard questions, by the way, because Jesus never 100% affirms our worldview. See, Jesus came in a time and a place and a context. Or as one of my professors in seminary was very fond of saying, Jesus came in skin and sandals and a zip coat. The good news that Jesus preached was always intended to come in the context of a culture. He lived the good news. He didn't just say it. And so using the language and the customs that culture would understand. This is not only because we are cultural beings. Culture is a product of human beings. But it's also partly how God redeems culture. Culture is a human product. It has all the marks of these weird and wonderful people, and with it, their larkness and their light, their good choices and their bad choices, their loves and their vices all mixed up together. And God loves people. God created people. But while we are loved, we don't always act like we are loved, and we more often than not create our own problems that, that, that God then has to redeem. So it is only natural that there's going to be a creative tension in the way that we do things as a church. On the one hand, how we live out that mission may reflect the way that our culture does things. But on the other hand, it also ought to do that in a countercultural way. So the church called the body of Christ then necessarily comes in many times and places and contexts and cultures and skin colors and languages and styles of footwear. No two churches are alike, and it's always evolving. But the mission remains the same. 
proclaim the good news of God's coming kingdom by loving God and loving people. And that's what we see in the rest of the book of Acts. And frankly, the entire rest of the New Testament. This is what our foremothers and forefathers did. Every single letter of the New Testament, including, yes, the book of Revelation and the four gospel accounts, is an example of the church of Jesus wrestling with what it means in a world undergoing massive change to posture ourselves to love both God and neighbor well. See, God is faithful. We can see this in the 2,000-year history of the church and in the thousands more of history that God loved the people of Israel. I'd wager that all of us have at least one, if not many, stories of how God has been faithful to us personally. We got to hear a great story last week from Kim Sisson about how God is being faithful not only to her, but through her and others to the people of Southeast Asia. If you haven't heard that yet, you should go online and have a look at last week's service. See, while human nature says that there's nothing new under the sun, it's also true that, as we heard from the prophet Isaiah, God is doing a new thing. Like the church in the first century and through the centuries, we too have a mission. In fact, the same mission, to connect and serve so that generations can discover and experience God's transforming love. More on that soon. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for giving us minds to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to care, bodies to experience. God, we confess our fear. We confess our uncertainty. We confess um, our anxiety over things we don't understand and the way that the world is changing. Lord, give us peace and comfort. But Lord, give us courage. May we see your faithfulness in the everyday things and help us to live out your faithfulness to this world who needs you so much. It is in your name we pray together, God. Amen. Amen.